Well, we are not where we plan to be. This, this, is, this is not where we plan to be. Four months ago, we planned that right after Easter, we would start a series that will take us through most of the summer, a good part of the summer in the book of Proverbs. Instead, we find ourselves in a five-part series examining the theology of generosity. It's called Generous God. Um, how did that happen? I mean, how, 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 did we, how did we get here? Well, it began with the leadership team and the elders uh, some months back, beginning to reflect back on the year that was. And as you know, it was not just a tough year you know, for a church, it was a, it was a tough year on the planet. Everything shuts down. God does not, in ways that we can't explain, you know, we've mentioned this, our, 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 your general giving, you know, that funds all things for ministry uh, uh, went up. Um, we had the largest global Christmas ever, less under our tree, more for the world. Four weeks span, you give $1.1 million to global and local partners around here, around here and around the world. Um, you know, it, it, unexpectedly, a family gives a $100,000 gift and wants it to go, it, it, was out, it was at our Brentwood congregation and said, we'd love to see that playground renewed. It's a 20-year-old playground. Uh, so $100,000 unbudgeted, unplanned, produces such a gift for the, the children's ministry there. And then just a few weeks ago, a family comes to us to say, um, we wanna make a gift. We have no idea what that gift is. Well, he gives $500,000. It's the largest gift we've ever received as a community of faith. Um, their only request was, you know, use it how you want to use it. But, but our prayer is that God would use it in such a way that it builds up the generosity of the body. Um, the elders in prayer felt like this was an opportunity to do something that we've sought to do over, over a decade of, of moving toward this, but things happening we couldn't, but to use this $500,000 gift as a lead gift to pay off uh, our mortgage. Y'all don't know this, I'm not sure many of you don't, but you know, from a high of $12 million back in 08, 09, uh, that currently stands at $1.6 million is our mortgage that we can pay off and what it frees up um, for for expanded ministry in so many different ways is, is, um, is amazing. Um, when you take that 1.6 and you, you take you know, 500,000 out, and if you go, and go ahead and take an additional, it's, a, it's 150 plus thousand out of designated giving. In other words, some of you, Franklin and at Brent would give toward that paying the mortgage directly. It's designated, take that. And if you take a hundred plus thousand dollars that the staff feels like we can save this year on our budget, can I, you know, the, the number that we've got to hit, the number is $800,000. So, so it, it, in this season, we have said, we're, did, we're gonna do it. And we're gonna do it now. That means I'm asking everyone who calls fellowship home, everyone, it's what, it's what Emily said, and it's what our kids are doing. Don't miss what God is doing in these moments. So between now and May 9th, we said we're gonna, we're gonna give, toward 800, give towards that $800,000. And because it's a work of the Spirit, you know, the whole thing Rob introduced was, well, how would he pay attention to the way the Spirit is blowing? This should not surprise us because it's of the Spirit. We know this, y'all, it's, it's not just about our mortgage. It is about the glory of God. You know, if you're going towards something, it's about the glory of God and generous hearts. It's about God changing us and revealing himself through generous hearts, not just now, 
but for a lifetime of generosity. So this is no shock to us that the spirit would seem to move us to say, okay, anything above the $800,000, it's gonna leave our hands and it's gonna leave our hands now because that's how generosity works. Generosity, generosity doesn't pull up and get bigger and hold it all right here. Generosity flows. Generosity, as the open hands show, touch our, generosity is when it touches our hand and it goes so that more, more, more God can move through our hands. Not surprising. How about this of the spirit? We, we're doing this to hit our, pay off our mortgage, 800,000 and our longtime partners, El Shaddai Church, over in Nolensville, one of the most dynamic, I mean, it, it's small, but boy, the leadership's so strong, the mission's so in line with our own. Um, that community of faith is raising $1.3 million to get home. They've not been home in 11 years. What I mean is in the 2010 flood, their church was so badly damaged, they had to leave and for the last 11 years, they've not worshiped in their home. And so the elders have sensed the spirit leading us to say, you know, what a significant portion of what comes in over our own mortgage, we want to get them home. Nothing less than get, help them get home. And so, this is why we are where we are. You know, how do we end up where we didn't expect? Well, because of the spirits moving. And so we're exploring the theology of generosity. And Rob outlined for us last week, um, from, from Genesis to Revelation, we see God is a generous God. Within, within the creation account and through the story of redemption, uh, God's generation takes precedence, it's front and center. The, the, story, the Bible's story and, and the Hebrew and Greek definition of generosity, it's a picture of open hands, quite frankly. It tells us it's, generosity is God's predisposition to superabundance. See, it's not generosity is God's predisposition to meet a need. Biblical generosity is his predisposition to meet a need and more than enough, to give you enough and more than enough. It's what we described as a sponge that's full of water. You know, it's full of water, but, but generosity is a sponge that has so much water in it and water just keeps coming on it that water just keeps flowing off of it and flowing off of it and pouring out of it. That's the biblical picture of generosity. Well, this morning, we're gonna turn to a very familiar story. Um, it paints a picture of generosity that is, remarkable. Um, it's a familiar story. Uh, it's so familiar, it's easy to miss what's in the story until we recognize, oh, there's more to this story than meets the eye. If, if we stay on the, well, hear me, if we stay on the surface of this story, we will, we will leave here smiling because it's just a feel-good story. But if we will if we will go beneath the storyline, and we'll do it with a proper biblical hermeneutic, proper biblical interpretation principles, but we go below the storyline, I will tell you this, we will walk away changed. 
today, we will walk away changed forever because it is a disruptive story. The story doesn't just point us to God's generosity, you all. It invites us to drink it. With that, I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter two. John chapter two, verses one through 11. And with that, as you're turning, I'm gonna ask you to stand. Uh, I'm gonna read it from the screen. I'm I'm not gonna have you read it with me because it's a longer passage, but I'd like us to stand in honor of God's word and uh, just follow along either on the screen or in your Bibles as we read his word to us today. You'll listen as I read it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it, where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves good wine first and then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. This is the living word of God for us today. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Mitch, for that amen. Um, Yesterday, I officiated a wedding at the Franklin campus for Millie Taylor. Um, Brad and Barb Taylor have been at Fellowship since the days we were using a car stereo. You saw the picture in the cafeteria at Franklin High. That's how long Brad and Barb have been around, such that I've known Millie since she was a baby. Um, Boy, when the service started, I'm standing in front of her, and I told him, I said, y'all gonna have to bear with me because I'm about to explode in tears. Just looking at Millie and, and her groom standing before me. I'm, I'm telling you, it was, it was pure joy. It was deep joy. It was festive joy. And that is what weddings are. Pure joy. Deep joy. Like, festive joy, that's what a wedding is. And that's no less than what we're to see in this very story. We're to feel the, 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 the joy of the feast. So we read it and we can go, that was good. But I'm telling you, we've gotta go underneath it to get to the festive joy that John is telling us. I've got to do some work here. So, so I, I don't have like an outline today. I just, it's just sit there and let's just, let's just jump into it and stay with me as I build a context and then we interpret out of the context. So with that, I'll throw this up on the screen. I'm gonna give you two 
context that we've got to have that unlock this story. The first is the biblical or the literary context, okay? And I've got two items here. We got to hold these, okay, before we get into the story. Marriage, throughout the Bible, you all, marriage is that institution God gives us. And then God says, I want you to understand that, that my desire for relationship with my people um, is best understood that it's like a marriage relationship. Now, I'm gonna tell you this. It's so much more than marriage, so let's not idolize marriage. It's so much more than marriage, but for us just to get a grasp of how God longs to relate to us, he says, look, I want you to look at the love between a husband and a wife, and you're catching a glimpse of my desire for relationship with you. Second, we need to keep in mind the cultural context of of wine, of wine. Uh, when you read the story, isn't it striking? If you just went by focus, we'd say that, quite frankly, the main character in the story is the wine. <laughs> Eight out of 11 verses, it's about the wine. Um, in, in the Bible, let's keep this in mind, that wine is always associated with abundance and blessing. Uh, we could say it like this, according to the Bible, wine is joy. There's no amen, there's nothing on that. Like now, if my wife was here, she would amen that. Um, wine is joy. It's a symbol of joy. And it's a symbol of joy and God says, it's like everywhere wine shows up in the Bible, God says this is a symbol of joy because it is symbolic of the presence of the kingdom. It is symbolic of all God has for us when Messiah comes. Wine is joy because it points to what will happen when Messiah arrives and brings the kingdom. Jeremiah describes this. It's a, it's a little bit of a long passage, but just listen to the, the abundance, the joy of the coming of Messiah. When he comes, he says, they will come home and sing songs of joy on the heights of Jerusalem. They will be radiant because of the Lord's good gifts and abundant crops of grain and new wine and olive oil and healthy flocks and herds. Their life will be like a watered garden and all their sorrows will be gone. The young men will dance for joy and the old men, the old and young will, will join in the celebration. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and exchange their sorrow for rejoicing. The priest will enjoy abundance and my people will feast on my good gifts. I, the Lord, have spoken. I'm gonna tell you what that sounds like. That sounds like a wedding. It's like a big old wedding is what he's describing. Yes, the coming of Messiah. Joy, health, celebration, feast, and always an abundance of wine. <laughs> the the, uh, the rabbis truly said this, where there is no wine, there is no joy. They got it. Okay, let me go to a second context, the cultural social context. We're, we're building a, a, a grid by which we can get under this story. How about cultural and social context? First is weddings. Um, Y'all, a Jewish wedding, um, it was not a four to five hour affair. It was days. 
it, was, it could be as long as a week. So the bridegroom goes in the dark of night, think of the parables of Jesus. The bridegroom goes in the dark of the night to get his betrothed, all his buddies with him. They go get her from her home. They take her back to his home, not to consummate the marriage, but to begin the celebration. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? They bring back to, to begin the celebration, the party that would go for days. It could go as long as a week. Secondly, under this social, cultural social context, I want you to think of weddings. I want you to think hospitality. So hospitality was a sacred duty. You know, we, we don't, you know, we kind of get put out when we put someone up for the night. You know, you can, some of us may have the gift of hospitality, but culturally hospitality for them was a sacred duty and delight. And may I say, one of the pinnacles of hospitality was when you hosted guests for your son's wedding feast. It's, this is so key. It's the responsibility of the bridegroom to provide the wine and the food and the feast. Which by the way, I know you guys know this, you know, our son Darden got married in October. I've got two daughters left. I think that we as Christians, American Christians, should adopt this ancient Jewish practice <laughs> moving forward, right? Where the groom pays for everything. Third thing regarding the social cultural context, there's weddings, hospitality, and then there's shame. This is a shame-based culture. This is an Eastern shame-based culture. Um, you, in a shame-based culture, you experience good or bad. You know whether you're good or bad based on what the community says about you. And when you violate the norm of the community, listen, being shamed is just the tip of the whole iceberg. You, you mess up or whatever and bring shame on your family. Listen, it, it could destroy you. Crazy as it sounds, y'all, there was legal recourse for guests when, when the, the wedding feast ran out of wine. Like that, should, that, that was not to happen. You know, I'll see you in court. Um, now, when we take all those contexts and lay them upon this story, I think we begin, I hope we begin to feel the weight. If the wine runs out, what if the wine, you see the weight of that for the bridegroom. May I say it like this? If they run out of wine, they run out of joy. And, and again, not just at this wedding feast, They've run out of joy for life. And John, you know, so, so that's, you know, there's the context. But again, we're gonna get underneath the story here in a moment. John makes clear that all of this that we just read, he makes clear there's more to it than we just read. Look at verse 11. He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. It's the Greek Simeon. It, uh, the, the, uh, it's different from, Translations that other places have miracles or wonders. A sign is pointing to something. John's gospel is built on seven signs that acts, miraculous things Jesus does that point to who he is and why he came. Always remember a sign is, you don't look at a stop sign and just go, that's, look at that pretty red, you know, 
sign. Look at the pretty white letters. No, no, the sign is pointing to something. It's telling you something. The important thing to remember here is in this sign of this water to wine at the wedding in Cana, it's pointing to something. And so when we begin to interpret and imply it, interpret it and imply it, we've got to say, okay, how is this story pointing us to the person and work of Jesus? Hey, we've got to answer that question. Let me walk through the story. I've read it, but let me just narrate it for you for a moment. It's highly likely this is a wedding of a family member or someone close to the family. You know, we, we can, it's, it's a proper assumption. Um, uh, Jesus's mother's there. Notice her name's never mentioned. It's always the mother of G- Jesus. Um, obviously, she's carrying some weight of responsibility um, because she's the one who's, who, like, of all the people there, she's the one who goes, we're running out of wine. So clearly she, she cares about the family whose ever wedding this is. It's a family, maybe it's family or maybe it's friend. Why does she go to Jesus? Why does, we're running out of wine. Why does she go to Jesus to tell him this? You see, think about the wedding feast. There is a master of the feast. Did you see that two times in the story? See, see Mary, in part, you would go to the master of the feast to say, hey, the, the wine's running out. I'm doing another wedding this afternoon. There's a wedding coordinator. She's sent me so many sheets of paper about how this wedding's gonna go. I'm telling you, if something, I needed something, I would go to the master of the feast, the wedding coordinator, you know, to take care of this. Why does she go to Jesus? Well, he doesn't say. So we'll just hold that. John does say what she said, and that's what matters. This is so, it's just four words, but it matters. She said, they have no wine. Jesus's response has drawn scrutiny for generations. Woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, I want you to know scholars agree, it, truly, this is not as abrupt as it sounds. It sounds so abrupt to our ears, not to their ears. So let me just go there. It, it, it's not as abrupt as that. What's important is the reason why he says this. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, There is mild rebuke, okay? So let's not take all the edge off of it. He is is saying nothing less than this. You know, Mary comes, Jesus, they have no wine. Mother, what is that problem to me? Uh, There's distance between me and that problem. Are you with me? So there's a gentle rebuke to her. And the reason is that, mother, that, that problem is not my problem. My hour has not yet come. So hear it this way. Um, when he says, my hour has not yet come, nine times in the, in the gospel of John, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. Well, we know, because the gospel tells us the hour is the hour of his death. Okay, so, so when he says it here, we need to know we, the hour is the hour of death. So, this little interchange, watch this. Here's, here's basically what happens. Mary comes to Jesus to say, they have no wine. Jesus says to his mom, it's not time for me to die. Like what? It's like a spiritual riddle that we need to solve. Well, we will. 
I love Mary's response. Again, we don't have to speculate, but I tell you what, I think what she says here is definitive. And it's what I've been trying to say to myself since I first trusted Christ. And it's what I've been trying to say to all of us for 23 years. You know what the literal Greek is uh, in her statement there in um, verse five? She turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you, do. Let's just close our Bibles and go home because there's, we're not gonna get any further in our faith until we get that. Boy, what does this verse mean? I, you know, I'm not sure what it means, but let me tell you what Mary said because this is the Christian life. Whatever he tells you, do. There's six stone water jars and it tells us clues. They were for the, the Jewish purification rites. So there are these jars there, okay? And, 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 and they, uh, they're used to cleanse your feet and your hands, right? I mean, you gotta clean it before you eat, go to the party. But they're also symbolic of, of spiritual cleansing, right? So the Jews constantly had to wash their hands. They had, you know, people got mad at Jesus because the disciples didn't wash his hands before they ate the grain. So that's, it, think of, it's, it's, it's purification, right? So that water also symbolically cleansed them from their what? Sin, their, their uncleanness, you know, symbolically before God. Well, they're filled to the brim. He instructs the servants to take a little ladle. You can picture a little ladle of this water. I mean, they, the people saw it's water. So they're taking water. To the, there's so much in this story I wish I could unpack. I hope you'll dive into it. But they're taking this water to the master of the feast. And you think about it, these servants are going, this guy's gonna spin in my face. When, he, when I take this to him, right, taste the wine, and it's, he's gonna, you know, they could be in trouble. Anyways, they take it to the master of the feast. He tastes it. It's the best wine. It's the good wine. And that's when he says, you know, most people um, give the good wine first, and then when everyone, you know, you give the good wine first while people are sober, and they go, this is good wine, this family, whoo, hospitality, uh, most people do that first. And then when they've drunk freely, by the way, can I say this? You know what that Greek word means? It means inebriated. This was alcohol, okay? They, but then when you're inebriated and your senses aren't so good, you can give them the bad stuff, <laughs> you know, the poor wine. Oh my goodness. And he says this, but you have saved the good wine for last, the end. The end, the end of story, right? Doesn't unpack it, the end. He does note that Jesus's glory is revealed and the disciples believed and we're left wondering, the end? I mean, that, that okay, it happened? What's, what's happening here? Well, let's, let's go to the more of the story. The more of the story. Based on the context I gave us, based on the story we just walked through, Four statements with massive implications. And, and I know this is gonna kind of maybe hit us abruptly, but uh, for the sake of time, we must. Um, four statements. Number one, what's, what's under the story? Here's the first thing that's under the story. Jesus is the end of the old covenant. You go, what? Jesus is the end of the old covenant? I'm talking about a wedding feast. Jesus is the end of the old covenant. When Mary said, we, 
He said, they have no wine. Um, John intends us to see that statement, they have no wine as God's diagnosis of the greater problem of the old covenant. It's bankrupt. It's poor wine. You see, you start putting these pieces together. It's The one who inaugurates the new covenant is here. The old covenant is gone. That's what he's saying. Those jars, remember the jars for, for, what were the jars for? They just weren't clay jars. They were stone. They were for the purification rites, i.e. for all the stuff that the Old Testament told them to do. But all that stuff, it's not like it's evil or wrong. All of that, when you, when you slaughtered the lamb, when you washed your hands in the water, when you went through purification rites, what was it doing? It was pointing toward the one who would come to fulfill it all. Y'all, he's here. He's here. They have no wine because the old covenant cleanses no one's heart. Oh, it may get dirt off your feet. It may get the sweat off your hands. It can't touch the heart where the real problem lies. Here's the riddle solved. Can I say it this way? Mary says, they have no wine. I could, I, could, I could paraphrase Mary's comments like this. She comes to Jesus and says, Judaism is empty. The old covenant's bankrupt. There's no joy. And now you see why Jesus said, it's not time for me to die. See, he was, he was, there's more to this story because he knew it was only in his dying shedding of his blood that real purification would come. Now, am I saying Mary knew this? That no, they didn't see this. But I will say this. Are you and I to see it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Secondly, Jesus is the good wine. Remember Moses, he turned the water to blood. Blood, a sign of judgment and death. Here comes Jesus, the greater Moses. He turns the water to wine. What's the, what's the Bible? What does wine symbolize in the Bible? What did I already say it symbolized? Joy, abundance, and provision of Messiah. In a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna come to the Lord's table. What are we gonna drink? Do you, think the, do you think that Mary, based on her, you know, do you think that Mary would have allowed the family to serve poor wine first and then good wine? I, I, this is just, I just think about this. To me, there's no way. Listen to me. The wine that was served at this wedding first was good wine. But compared to the wine that Jesus makes, y'all, do you see this? It makes that wine look like vinegar. That's the way of Jesus. See, when Jesus is on the scene, good things, in the light of Jesus, they seem like not as great as we thought they were. 
Third, Jesus is the master of the feast. Who's in charge of this wedding, y'all? Think about it. Who's in charge? Well, Mary tried to be. There's a master of the feast. He's, he, he's not. Who's in charge? Say it. Yeah, third, who's the bridegroom at this wedding? Who's the real bridegroom? You're not gonna miss it if you yell it. Jesus is the bridegroom, isn't he? How do we know Jesus is the bridegroom? Who provides the wine? Man, there, I was reading this, y'all. I had to push back from my desk and go, Jesus, you're so good to us. You know, I didn't see all this stuff in the story, so I study it. He's the groom. Hmm. And so at this wedding, where it's appropriate for joy to be, Jesus enters the joy, but do you know Jesus has got his eye on another wedding? Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the lamb. See, it's just amazing to me that he, he's got his eye on that future feast. Can I tell you something? For all who put their faith in Christ and who are at that feast with Jesus, it's gonna be more than we can hold. Well, you know, he made a ridiculous amount of wine here, you guys. It's probably 700 to 900 bottles. I mean, there's enough wine here for this couple to live off of for a year. Why so much wine? Because God is predisposed to generosity. Because this was a sign pointing to the future wedding feast where the wine will have no end. Festive joy forever. Let's take our cups and the bread. Let's come to this table. I'll tell you, this story tells us that the wedding feast that is to come has broken in upon our world. Do you see that now? The feast that is to come has broken into our world right now and we can drink and eat of that feast. Take the bread and the cup in your hand. And truly out of this message, I, I, I hope my, 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 what I'd like us to do is just pause to thank God for his generosity in Jesus. We'll sing that Jesus is indeed more than enough. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for a story of a wedding that picks our eyes up to say, oh my, there's more happening here than we can see. But then when we see it, we see that Jesus is more than enough. As we hold this bread and cup, we remind ourselves Jesus is more than enough. When we're when we're tempted to drink the poor wine of this world, thinking it'll satisfy, this moment tells us Jesus is all we need and more than enough. For your body broken, Lord Jesus, we say thank you. This tiny wafer is symbolic of 
an infinite supply. Thank you. Take and eat the bread. This cup, a sip really, is symbolic of an endless supply. Your blood covering our sin, satisfying the wrath of the Father. Your death secures our future. Jesus, for your blood poured out, we remember. We give thanks. Take and drink the cup. Let's stand together and be reminded that this story of this wedding at Cana is the story of festive joy. And genuine festive joy is only in Jesus, who's always more than enough.